Hello, and welcome to Catalyst, the Travel and Purpose podcast. Today, we'll be talking with Genevieve Hono about her work in Canada and Indigenous tourism. Catalyst is the online platform about social action and travel, and these podcasts are a series of conversations about social impact and travel. I'm Eden Flaherty, and I'm going to be your host. Hello, Genevieve. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Eden. Thanks for having me. Cheers. Okay, so let's start with your involvement with ITAC. Can you tell us a bit about what that is and what Indigenous tourism involves? Yeah, absolutely. So my role with Indigenous Tourism Association of Canada, or otherwise known as ITAC, is within the development department. So as the development coordinator, I work with our membership across Canada, which is predominantly Indigenous tourism businesses. So when we work with businesses across Canada, our main objective is to help grow a healthy Indigenous tourism sector. So my role specifically looks at helping develop experiences and programs so that when visitors come to those businesses, it's an experience worth remembering. Can you tell us a bit more about the Indigenous communities in Canada? Yeah, absolutely. You know, just to start, in Canada, we have such a diversity of Indigenous, Inuit and Métis people. And so to describe it in a short period of time can be difficult. But to give an an understanding a little bit, we have over 700 Indigenous communities across Canada. And they all have their own unique history, language and customs which I find so fascinating. I grew up in the era of, you know, in the educational system, Indigenous history in Canada in particular wasn't extremely robust. And it wasn't until after, you know, high school that I really started to understand the history and the complexity and the uniqueness of Canada and the Indigenous people that have been here since time immemorial. And I just find it so fascinating. I mean, even just from the word Canada, it comes from a Huron-Iroquois word, which means kanata, meaning village or settlement. So, you know, there's so much even Canadian history that's really steeped in Indigenous language and and culture. So, you know, even in, in BC, where I live, British Columbia, there's over 200 nations. I live here in Port Alberni, which is the unceded traditional territories of the Hupetchuset and Seychot, whom are part of the New Chalmers people. So, you know, getting into the different layers of the different types of tribes and whether the, the territories and the lands are treaty lands or unceded traditional territories, it's quite fascinating while some of them also live on reserves or off reserves. And again, that is determined based off of agreements that they've made with the federal governments, how they govern their own land, whether they're sovereign to the land and the communities that they live within. So very, very complex nations across Canada. And, you know, even from a provincial and territorial perspective, there's a lot of diversity there. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, 
Canada's certainly not alone in lacking education when it comes to indigenous communities, but I had absolutely no idea it was that many and that diverse. And I certainly had no idea about Canada actually coming from an indigenous language originally, which is incredible. Yeah. And in other parts of the of the country, especially here in BC, we often refer to it as Turtle Island as well. So that's just another interesting fact around how, you know, some indigenous people perceive the land itself and and that they believe that it you know it Canada is situated on a, a turtle's back and so it's called Turtle Island in in a lot of places, which is cool. And and what is really interesting, although Canada is extremely diverse, there are some similarities, I guess, that you can you can kind of see across the nation. So for example, there's a deep respect for elders in many of the indigenous Inuit and Métis nations. And that's because they hold key stories and legends. And this is mostly passed down through oral stories to several of the generations to come. And so elders is one component that's really, you know, that you can see across Canada. And then another one is that, again, the spiritual relationship with nature which obviously is permeated, you know, across all aspects of their daily life from, you know, food to housing to the the communal space that they have for certain ceremonies. And that really reflects that kind of that spiritual relationship. And that and again, the, the longstanding connection to the natural world, which is often visualized in arts and songs and dances and ceremonies. So those three things you can see as a commonality across Canada, but they're expressed in different ways, which is really great because you can, you know, you can get a piece of art or see carvings in the West Coast of Canada, which depict some legends and storytelling, which is so unique to the place and to that nation. But then you'll also see artwork and songs and carvings in other places of Canada that, again, the tradition, that that act of the visual arts and, and performative pieces is common, but it means something completely different. Can you tell us a bit more about Indigenous tourism? Yeah, absolutely. So Indigenous tourism is an emerging sector here in Canada. From an association and kind of an organizational perspective, Indigenous tourism has only really been you know, developed and, and marketed in the last 20 years, where we might see some more some more mature organizations or indigenous tourism sectors across the world. Canada is still really growing that sector. That being said, though, it is one of the fastest growing tourism sectors in Canada, and that was from a pre-COVID perspective. So one in three international visitors were interested and booked cultural experiences here in Canada. And the international visitors could be anyone from people from the United States, people from China, people from Germany. And this was starting to become a very, very popular trend pre-COVID where Indigenous experiences were very high on the, on the, let's say, the bucket list. So again, what does our sector kind of look like? There's close pre-COVID. These are all pre-COVID numbers. Of course, there's been some devastation and some negative impacts because of the pandemic to the tourism industry. But Indigenous Tourism Canada had close to 2,000 Indigenous businesses in their membership. So 2,000 businesses across Canada were being marketed and helping them develop their experiences so that they could be 
again, marketed internationally. So that equated to around 40,000 people, Indigenous people working in the associated industries, so food and beverage, accommodation, outdoor adventure, wildlife viewing, culinary experiences. And this all combined into a direct economic footprint of close to $2 billion in GDP. So quite a significant contribution to the GDP. And, and that was that was still growing numbers. We had our we had a record high in 2019, so right before COVID hit. And so, you know, the, the industry I think is quite optimistic. It's exciting to know that people are interested in understanding and learning about indigenous culture here in Canada and then going further and voting with their with their money and supporting these indigenous tourism businesses whether they're owned by indigenous people by indigenous communities could be for for profit or not for profit so it's really it's really interesting and inspiring to see the the type of economic contribution that the tourism industry can have for indigenous nations and people. Those are substantial numbers, especially the number of people actually looking for these experiences. What are these cultural experiences? What might it look for if you were a traveler going to Canada? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, it's so diverse. So you can have an indigenous owned business that may not have a cultural experience. So there's a few ways to kind of look at it. If you are interested in supporting local, for example, if you're a traveler, you can choose to, you know, stay at a hotel, for example, that's owned by an indigenous band or an indigenous community. And that's one way of supporting indigenous people. Or you can have a very cultural, immersive experience, for example, where you are going on a canoe and hearing some of the stories of the the people from the land and what it meant to them to canoe and how they build the canoes and what the cultural significance of that is. So there's a huge spectrum of what you can experience. There's culinary aspects where we have Indigenous people using some of the traditional ingredients such as salmon, such as, you know, some of the plants that you can find locally across Canada, so very diverse again, and creating these culinary experiences that are steeped in tradition, again, sharing the culture with people and having kind of that experiential experience with food and and um, someone who comes from the local nation there. I guess a general breakdown of the the most popular Indigenous businesses, tourism businesses, is accommodations, arts and heritage, food and beverage, and then definitely recreation and outdoor adventure. So some of the really popular ones here in British Columbia, for example, are wildlife viewing. We host, you know, we have so many beautiful animals and the, the forests themselves are are well known among the world to to visit so it's a pretty special experience when you do have a first nations metis or inuit person talking from their lived experiences and from those traditional places so you can you can choose to watch you know bears along the shore in the forest by any other tourism operator but i think the cultural and the indigenous perspective really adds some you know a value there and a uniqueness because you're hearing you're hearing kind of from this authentic original perspective mm, yeah it's interesting how those kind of larger tourism trends for the nature tourism adventure tourism go hand in hand 
with those cultural experiences as well? I mean, even in my evolution of of being a traveler, I I now seek out indigenous tourism products when I'm traveling. And that's not just because I work in the industry here in Canada, but it's something that I think is is important and of my kind of my travel values and why not support local where you can. I think they, you know, you just it's a different experience and for me it's a really enriching one. Absolutely. I don't expect you necessarily to have these figures to to hand, but you mentioned there that that a large number of international travelers are looking for these cultural experiences, this indigenous tourism. Do you have any figures about domestic demand? I don't offhand. I think what I'll say in regards to that is that Canadian people are still learning about indigenous Inuit and Métis people and we are in a period of reconciliation and decolonization. And so a lot of people still have, you know, negative stereotypes or limited understanding of what Indigenous communities or in businesses can offer. And so I think one of the silver linings with the pandemic is that we are, you know, looking inward to to bolster the economy. So I believe the indigenous tourism sector is, you know, working towards marketing domestically. And I hope that that results in awareness building and an educational component so that Canadians can also experience these amazing products and amazing businesses and really help bridge that that understanding through tourism experiences. And I also did, Eden, I wanted to acknowledge my work with Social Root is in a community called Port Alberni, and, and that's the unceded traditional territories of the Hupechisa and the Seychot people. And here in Canada, we do our best to acknowledge the traditional territories in which we live, play and work within. So I, I did want to say that here today as a way to a recognize the, the traditional people and to also as an exercise in in my practice of decolonization, acknowledging, you know, the rich history that we both share and, and our work towards reconciliation. Absolutely. So on the topic of Indigenous tourism, you recently authored a paper in this field called From Unlikely to Likely Partnerships for Change, Child Welfare and Indigenous Tourism in Canada. Can you tell us a bit about this research? Yeah, I'm really excited to share this research. So myself and another co-author, Mario Tomo, and I co-authored this article, and it originated back two years ago. And Mario Tomo and I were discussing the systemic issues that we often try to, to solve in our work. And Mari comes from a social work background, and as you've probably learned, I come from a tourism background. And so while we were having these discussions, which are always really exciting and, and, and pretty, they go pretty deep and, and critical, we were really excited to hear of the release of child welfare guidelines by G Adventures. And this is what really sparked our journey into this research. So back in 2018, G Adventures released these 15 guidelines, both for tourists and for tourism operators, to really address the range of risks to children, and not just from a sexual exploitation perspective, but really looking at the broader considerations of the overall health and safety of children in Canada through a tourism lens. 
while this was a really great publication and a really great step forward in acknowledging child safety and welfare, Mari and I were talking about how it might not necessarily, I want to say transcend or transfer to specifically a Canadian context, given the history of colonization and the overrepresentation of children, Indigenous children specifically, in the child welfare system. So I wanted to give a bit of a background context because that's kind of the, the origins of where this really started. So we asked ourselves, what is the role of, for example, Indigenous tourism and, and tourism industry as a whole in Canada in contributing towards the well-being of Indigenous children in Canada? So what we decided to do was look at basically public-facing documents. And we reviewed 58 public documents. And these were from national and provincial destination marketing organizations, both Indigenous and non-Indigenous. The findings are are pretty clear. And it goes, you know, without, I guess not without saying, but without any public acknowledgement from the tourism sector in their public-facing documents, on how they, for example, are incorporating child welfare protocols or safety practices, it it goes to suggest that there's little evidence of how those those two intersect and the impact they have on each other at this time. And I think that's pretty significant as a finding. We see see value in understanding the intersection between Indigenous tourism or tourism in general and child welfare. So our, you know, our biggest recommendations are really to understand, one, the intersection. So from from a practice perspective or an industry perspective, we really recommend that people start to build their awareness. So that could look like starting conversations regarding the intersection. That could look like scoping out what kinds of partnerships that need to be created or evolve so that this starts to become the mainstream conversation and really about the responsibility of child welfare in multiple sectors. And we specifically target, again, tourism. From a research perspective, we really recommend that there needs to be continued and future research on this and that it should be led by Indigenous researchers or through Indigenous partnerships. So a culturally appropriate inquiry is really important. And my, my co-author and I, we acknowledge that we're non-Indigenous female researchers. And so there's only so much space that we want to take up in this conversation. And we hope that we can really facilitate, you know, and start the conversation. But we really see this as a collaborative effort, you know, to conduct and, and evaluate whether Indigenous people, governments and organizations can or should adopt already existing child welfare guidelines, for example. In addition to your work with ITAC, you're also the founder and principal partner at Social Root Consulting. Can you tell us a bit about that project? Yeah, so that's definitely, what's the term you use, The like my brain love child. <laughs> Social Root was founded back in 2017. And it was founded on the principles of creating social and environmental change from a grassroots and systems change perspective. So really our purpose is is to work with governments, businesses, organizations in their effort to be courageous leaders in their communities. And we see this by, you know, supporting the creation of new socially and environmentally conscious systems. 
So what I really mean by that is, is we operate mostly in, in three different streams and we offer workshops and facilitation. We conduct research and then we also do development and, and project management within within our, our firm. And we felt that by offering these three streams, we're really able to contribute from, you know, a, a business to business level to emphasizing that to a macro level and working with governments or municipalities on more of a systems change perspective. So really we've we're we're offering, you know, anywhere from a simple audit of a business on how they can improve their social and environmental practices or policies to really addressing some of the major issues that many Canadian cities and communities face, such as poverty, such as food security, such as addressing tourism as an economic option. Again, looking at tourism through a sustainable and regenerative lens. I understand that one of the projects at Social Roots Consulting is a local music festival called Five Acre Shaker. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. So the Five Acre Shaker has been around for about five or six years now. Unfortunately, due to the pandemic, it did not happen this year. But this musical festival was was created by a man named Lance Goddard. And he it's actually he started it in memorial of a friend who passed away who was very connected with the the music and art scene and he essentially started it on his five five acre property and it has now become quite large and it hosts anywhere between 25 to 3000 people in august and it's situated on a beautiful historic park called mclean mill which which connects to the historic history of Port Alberni, which is traditionally a, a forestry and milling community. So it's it's on this park. The backdrop is a historic mill. And then you've just got the vibe of the people and the vendors and the stage, which offers an amazing venue for, you know, family and and people who want to experience local music and culture. My work and social roots work with the Five Acre Shaker was to develop sustainability initiatives so that the the festival not only just brought you know a social opportunity and an entertainment opportunity to the community but was also ensuring that we were we were working and operating within best practice we are not contributing to waste we're not contributing to single use plastic and there's also an indigenous perspective there as well we hope to continue building our relationship with Hupetjaset and Seishat, who are the First Nations people who traditionally occupy this land. We're hoping to also integrate those social components and engage in that relationship so that the festival can be not just about music, it can also be a cultural reflection of the Indigenous people here. So one of the projects that I'm really proud of was the Rain Barrel Project, and that was addressing water usage at the festival. The first year I worked with them, we eliminated water, plastic water bottles for sale and for availability, which was great. We were super impressed. You know, we were able to work with the vendors to not have any water bottles. We worked with the, the festival goers and suggesting, please bring your reusable water bottles. But what we also realized is by eliminating access to plastic water bottles or the sale of plastic water bottles, we had to provide a water system for them. So this was also a great opportunity for us to highlight and create an awareness platform around water usage, not just within the festival, but outside in the community. 
So what we did was we salvaged food safe rain barrels and we partnered with local artists in the community and they donated their time and created these beautiful murals on the rain barrels. And then what we did is we auctioned them off and sold them. And all those funds went towards the green initiatives for the shaker. We distributed these across the the festival grounds as an art installation. And we also held workshops around how rain barrels contribute to rainwater harvesting, how you can use them for your gardens, how you can use them for, say, washing your car. So it really it was a great icon or, you know, symbol of how can we use water in a safer way, not not just at the festival, but again, in your homes outside of, you know, all year round. Yeah, using that as a jumpstart for a kind of broader conversation around the topic. Mm-hmm. This podcast obviously has a heavy focus on travel, and seemingly so do you, having visited more than 23 countries. Can you tell <laughs> us a bit about your most notable experiences and what led you to become such such a traveler? Oh, that's a big question. I would say that, you know, initially my my sense of curiosity and, and love for social connection is really what drove the start of my my travel journey. And when I got out of high school, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I mean, there's always a push of doing post-secondary right away. But regardless of where I am now, back back in the day, I was, I was not academically inclined uh, whatsoever. So I, I turned to travel as, as my teacher and as my way to, you know, explore people and places and environments. Essentially, that actually led me to wanting a career in, tu- in tourism and travel. And so my, I would have to say one of, some of my most notable experiences are traveling and experiencing the communities across Central America. I fell in love, like a part of my soul and heart is in Central America. I just, I fell in love with the culture, the food, the people. It was also one of the first places that I realized, I guess, my level of privilege as, as a Western traveler. And going more into detail about that, it was simply just the language. Before Central America, I had traveled to Southeast Asia. I traveled through Europe and the States. And and within those three destinations, the people were very accommodating to the English language. So my assumption until Central America was that, you know, destinations will accommodate you if you speak English. But that wasn't the case so much in Central America. And and I also speak French, which was a saving grace, but they, you know, they held me to a higher standard. There's, you know, they, they straight up told me like, why would you come to a country if you're not willing to, to, to learn the language or be able to speak the language? And that really challenged my perspective and, and humbled me in a big way. And I definitely had to learn how to speak Spanish off the cuff or at least enough Spanish to get me around to the train station or, you know, to, to the airport or to the bathroom or wherever else I needed to go. So that was that was kind of my first awakening around responsible tourism behavior and, and really cultural awareness and sensitivity. It sounds like an amazing experience. It was. Finally, can you tell listeners how they can get in touch with you and your organization? Yes, absolutely. So we are on social media, specifically Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Social Root Consulting. And then if you're curious about the projects and the research we do, we do have a website and that's www.socialrootconsulting.com. 
And if you have a burning desire to contact us right away and learn more, or if you want to perhaps be involved in some of the projects, you can email us at hello at socialrootconsulting.com. Thank you, Genevieve, for joining us on Travel and Purpose. You can find more Travel and Purpose podcasts at catalyst.cm, our platform for social action and travel content. If you have your own Travel and Purpose stories to share and feel your story would be right for our podcast, let us know by emailing info at catalyst.cm and we'll try and get in touch for you to join us in one of our next conversations.